0: The American Civil War Podcast, Episode 5, mudsills and Greasy Mechanics, A Ridiculously Brief Survey of the United States. We've discussed economics, inventions, and industry, but there is at least one more element to the American story that also needs to be told, the people themselves. This episode must necessarily be absurdly too short for its topic, because it can be dangerous to try going into too much detail here. The point is to help listeners understand who the people fighting in the Civil War actually were. To do that, we necessarily end up looking at broad social trends rather than diving down to the details. There's just no other way to really go about it. So please take everything I say today with several grains of salt. Everything here is like looking at the landscape from an airplane, nothing intentionally false, but also missing all the local important differences. For that, I apologize, and I hope you'll bear with me past any annoying inconsistencies that may result. Additionally, I can't even cover every state, and certainly not all of them, in the detail that a deep historical work should, but hopefully this will explain the major peoples of importance and their homes. If there's a single fact that should be gotten across, though, It's that the Civil War was emphatically not fought between a single North and a South. Neither of these sections was unified. In fact, the regions were not unified, and not even the states within them were unified, either in ideology or politics or purpose. Americans never have, and likely never will, be quite that unified on anything. The one constant in human history appears that we constantly argue with one another. So understand up front that this discussion is, again, wildly oversimplified. I well understand that I'm telling a wildly oversimplified story here, and that it may still be extremely useful material. At the same time, simplification seems appropriate because many of the state-level differences present during the Revolutionary Period had faded. State identities had not disappeared, but most people saw broad similarities with their neighbors across the nation. And the country was knit together culturally and economically in depth almost unimaginable in the Revolutionary period. Partly because of immigration and cultural mixing across the country, and also because all those transportation, technological, and industrial changes cut across state boundaries. This is one reason among many that the Civil War appears almost absurd in historical hindsight, as well as brutally tragic. The average South Carolinian had nearly everything in common with a Massachusetts man, as could be hoped for, save slavery. And yet in 1861, these men might be lining up to kill one another near the capital city, where they had just weeks earlier been meeting together as the legislature of their one common country. For a quick overview of the United States as a whole, almost anywhere you went in the U.S., several factors appeared universal. First, in most places, farmers made up about half the population. Although the country was becoming more urban in this period, mechanical labor had not quite arrived on the farms, and would not until the Civil War itself. Because of this, farmers had plenty of work to go around, and with the transportation revolution, had an easier-than-ever time selling the produce. Cheap land could still be had for would-be farmers almost everywhere, And while it might not always be the best land, it would usually do. Thus, there was a lack of an economic push into the cities. However, even skilled craftsmen didn't necessarily live in the cities either, but many still dwelled in the scattered towns and villages around the country. That said, I don't want to emphasize this too much, because major cities such as New York and Philadelphia certainly existed, and they caused a growing urban population that would only increase with time. Second, at this time, most inhabitants of the country still held very tightly to Protestantism, and many cultural assumptions rested on that. Yet at the same time, most Americans experienced very little religious friction with other particular churches. Most often, a Pennsylvania Quaker, for instance, had no real difficulty associated with his Presbyterian neighbor, although a few unusually radical or perhaps culturally bizarre sects could stress this overall tolerance. And similarly, we may discuss the Mormons down the line, but that is a topic for another day, if ever. The one fracture point that did eventually come up in American religious life, however, was slavery. It eventually caused the Baptists and Methodists to literally split their churches on the subject, and quite a few unpleasant arguments followed in other church meeting halls. Finally, Americans shared a common history, literature, and overall values. Most Americans believed in hard work and often scoffed at social pretensions, which indeed dropped sharply over time following the revolution. Even the most egalitarian of the Founding Fathers lived in a world where semi-aristocratic privilege was accepted and considered normal. By the time most of them passed on, that world effectively no longer existed, at least outside of plantation slavery. This is not to say that privilege of birth or connections didn't exist, nor that peoples outside the United States had no similar ideals. However, remember that in 1860, the United States elected to the presidency the son of a poor farmer, who himself started life as a day laborer. At this time, every nation in Europe was formally ruled by a monarchy of some flavor, except Switzerland, and almost every country had some manner of nobility along with it rising on the basis of pure merit in the United States was not just a perfunctory principle. Now, this did not necessarily exclude women either, for though women did not participate in public life directly as voters, they could, and did, openly organize and influence society through demonstration, education, and communication. Now, with all of that out of the way, for no reason at all aside from it being convenient for me, I am very roughly covering the northern section of the country from east to west, and then again for most of the southland. Thus, the first region on the agenda is the northeast, also called New England, including Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Several things about this area stand out. The northeast was not inherently wealthy. In fact, it probably remained the poorest section of America in the days just before the Revolutionary War. It was sadly not blessed with great resources in most respects, and the soil comparatively thin and rocky. Yet its settlers had placed a great emphasis on commerce and education, which did prove its value as the region boomed following independence. The states in this region, then and now, remain quite small, but that contributed to a great deal of attention towards local problems and arguably a more responsive government given the relative nearness of state geography. In addition to all of this, the great concentration of excellent universities gave New England an outsized importance on national economy and culture. After the revolution, uh, New England developed into a manufacturing powerhouse focused on textiles and consumer goods, while other colonies continued to take more and more of the commercial and financial sectors. Though hardly the sole center of industry in the Americas, it held for quite some time the greatest concentration of it outside of Europe, and New England Yankees were well known to be both industrious and innovative. As we've seen, several such men were instrumental in developing new technologies that proved central to the late 19th through the 20th centuries. New England states tended towards intensive development and more urbanization, at least in the coastal cities with better harbors. In the social realm, New England was no calm, politically dull backwater, either, and they moved ahead on public issues as well as business. Several of the early colonies profited, and profited greatly, from the slave trade, but in the early years of the Republic had themselves turned to abolitionism, partly due to a strong evangelical or Calvinist bent among much of the population. There absolutely lay a powerful ideological component to this, but there also existed an economic and political logic because abolition could, in theory, drastically cut the strength and influence of the Southeast, the most significant rival for New England's influence on the national stage. Conversely, many of those immensely productive factories we'd mentioned took the form of mills and looms, buying cotton by the ton, leading to the rise of a political faction among some manufacturers or shippers known as the Cotton Whigs, who tended to be broadly liberal in sympathies, but implicitly pro-slavery. Additionally, Uh, As we've discussed again, among all of this, we see many strikes and reform movements for limited work hours, better pay, and the declining use of child labor. This divide was also set amidst the backdrop of the rapid growth of the country westward and the loss of power and prestige it caused the Northeast. While New England benefited from this growth through expanding markets, the former middle colonies, especially New York, gained much, much more. The entirety of New England held 3 million citizens, but this was no more than a drop compared to the national population, largely because some of the mighty later waves of migration had not yet crashed onto the northern shores and swelled the population of New England's cities. This brings us to those middle states, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. These were hardly trivial, even at the time of the Revolutionary War but the early period of the republic was their time to truly shine. New York City began its explosive growth phase, aided by its perfect position to take advantage of internal and external trade, and eclipsed Philadelphia in size easily. Meanwhile, these states were also very well placed to dominate the expansion of trade westward. It was no accident that New York saw the advantages of building canals early, because New York City, in addition to having excellent harborage, also lay relatively close to the Great Lakes, and thus was far easier to link up compared to most American cities. As is the way of transportation, more road and rail growth then added onto the value of this network, and allowed New York City to become the powerhouse commercial hub for the United States, and later to become its financial center as well. New York banks, in part, financed the country, and along the way began building up a locus for stock trading at the old city edge, that is, Wall Street. New York State had a few quirks regarding slavery. Although an anti-slavery movement started early, it lacked the strength to carry through on its plans of gradual emancipation, partly because of the influence of the Dutch population, which is its own wild diversion to explore. In brief, however, just as Dutch merchants had brought slavery to the colonies in the form of Virginia, they also brought it to their own colony of New Amsterdam. In the immediate region around New York City, quite a few towns still spoke Dutch as a primary language long after independence. They resisted the imposition into their affairs from English speakers, including into slavery, but of course they were hardly the only slaveholders in the region. In the end, it took years of haggling and pressure to finally begin the liberation of New York, which passed an abolition law in 1817 that took full effect by 1827. However, New York is it now and wasn't then the entirety of the region. New Jersey, though not as wealthy or influential as its larger neighbors, was still very heavily populated and an industrial center at in its own rate. Additionally, it naturally benefited greatly from the growth of New York City while being able to chart its own path. Because of its prime location between Philadelphia and New York, with Baltimore just beyond, New Jersey became crucially important to the transportation infrastructure of the early republic, including creating and breaking several transportation monopolies. As an example, Cornelius Vanderbilt owed a great deal of his legendary wealth to activities in New Jersey, and the state in turn owed much of its developing success to the Hudson and Delaware rivers, their steamboats, and later the railroads crisscrossing the state, as it lacked deep mineral resources or ocean harbors of its own. By contrast, Pennsylvania perhaps had the greatest resource surplus of any eastern state, and would be propelled to even greater economic heights as the burgeoning heavy industries exploded just before and during the Civil War. The American oil industry began there, because as it turns out, Pennsylvania's oil happened to be easily accessed, so near the surface in fact that it sometimes spouted up without drilling. The state became the inadvertent founder of the oil-based energy economy for the world in a way. Yet, Pennsylvania was also a major coal-producing region even before that, and this also spurred the growth of steel production, too, from the Iron rich Hills. Pennsylvania would soon prove crucial to the Union war effort in countless ways, and held considerably more industrial capacity than the entire South combined. Now, as a state, it was hardly unique in that, for both New York and comparatively tiny Massachusetts boasted the same. Yet, during the Civil War, Pennsylvania... Well, their foundries and arsenals poured an absolute river of cannon and iron plate into the war effort and uniquely pennsylvania faced both the western and eastern theaters of war and so the productivity of pittsburgh fueled the war effort in missouri tennessee and the mississippi region as well as northern virginia finally pennsylvania was the most abolitionist state in all of the mid-atlantic region and hosted the american anti-slavery society of which quite a number of famous founders became early members. This seems to have been, in part, the legacy of its Quaker founders, but also because Pennsylvania bordered Maryland and Virginia, making it an attractive home base for those who sought to actively help slaves escape or undermine the peculiar institution. Despite being overshadowed by her big neighbors, Delaware is perhaps the most interesting state to study in the antebellum period, precisely because it bordered the South, yet wasn't quite a part of it. Delaware served as a mixing ground for southern and northern men alike who joined the descendants of Dutch and Scandinavian settlers and established a thriving economy with slave plantations but not dependent on it. The tide of slavery began to turn in its own time, however, after a wave of voluntary manumissions in the colony. Delaware, along with Kentucky, were the states most firmly wedded to the status quo before the Civil War and would resist radical change during the conflict. However, with relatively little electoral impact or strategic significance, Delaware couldn't exercise the same kind of cultural or social influence as Kentucky. On the whole, the entire Mid-Atlantic was lukewarmly abolitionist on the issue of slavery, but would still be strongly pro-Union and pro-war, with a few unusual exceptions, as we will see. This meant immense weight pressing, if gently, towards anti-slavery causes, since New York alone held nearly 4 million souls, with nearly 3 million more in Pennsylvania and well over 600,000 in New Jersey. This together was somewhat more free citizens than the entire South in 1860. Continuing westward, we come to the Midwest, also sometimes called the Old Northwest because it was the original northwestern frontier of the United States. The Midwest is an extremely large region, but its geography presents numerous and unique transportation challenges and an equal number of opportunities, for it spans the ground between the Great Lakes and the Ohio-Mississippi Riverways. At the time of the Civil War era, the Midwest strongly focused on agriculture given the fertile soil of the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Iowa, Missouri, and eventually Minnesota. Kansas, as we will see, was not quite a state, but its story will play a critical role in sparking the war. In the antebellum era, the Midwest was a rapidly growing region with a surprisingly diverse population, partly owing to immigration following the failed revolutions of 1848. Culturally, however, the Midwest formed a broad middle of American society. Often fiercely resistant to elite imposition. Furthermore, elites in the Midwest tended to decidedly less extremes of power compared to, say, New York or Charleston. That didn't mean there were no wealthy families, just that their fortunes looked rather less extreme compared to the average man. Likewise, said average man could more realistically aspire to some reasonable amount of farm property of his or her own although cash wages might be harder to come by, and cities relatively rare. Now, for the exception which proves the rule, Chicago had already become an almost overnight success story, but that was merely one small part of recent history in a region which acknowledged no central axis yet. While we don't have time to explore all of these states, although I would like to, it is important to know who lived in them because of the politics of the region, which are going to play a very strong role in deciding the outcome of the war. Many of the southern adjacent regions of the Midwest, close to the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, were settled by Americans from the slave states moving up the river system, and retained extensive commercial and familial ties with the South. These people looked to New Orleans as their port of call, and the river system along the way allowed them to sell corn, pork, and whiskey all over the southern states. These groups leaned towards voting Democrat, which would become very important to elections leading up to the Civil War and were somewhat less urbanized than the northern sections of the Midwest. Yet these citizens were also very attracted to the Jacksonian populism of the 1830s, or later the Douglasite wing of the party, and no friend of the Calhounites. Only Missouri held an openly pro-slavery faction, and events would prove they remained a distinct minority, a bit of f- albeit a fanatic one. Most settlers in the northern parts of the Midwestern states came from the Middle Colonies or New England, or at least passed through those regions. They usually raised wheat and cattle, and often sold their goods through the Great Lakes with its attendant canal system, as often as south through New Orleans or later on the railroads. By both origin and standing relationships, they were more inclined to associate with the east and north. In addition, the Midwest felt the impact of a large wave of German migration, which definitely changed the culture of the region in ways which can still be felt today. The German immigrants, which also included a great many Hungarians and others, were religiously mixed and hailed from a variety of small European states. Many had fled the failed revolutions of 1848, as we mentioned, and were simultaneously strongly opposed to slavery and in favor of republican government, which, as it turned out, looked rather compatible with government by republicans. Now, this divide between North and South within the Midwest should not be taken as the same critical fracture point that it came to be nationally. Despite having cultural differences that will cause some real political rifts down the line, these regions did not have the kind of bitter split that tore brother against brother. Most of the old Northwest never allowed slavery at all, or enacted anti-slavery laws directly upon statehood. Their brand of democratic ideology is even when they voted that way, proved wildly incompatible with the vision of many Southerners, with one exception. As we said, it should be noted that Missouri was in the midst of a major transformation itself, and that would become a source of bitterness for years to come. Now, also, understand that anti-slavery views did not always coincide with favoring equality or justice. Many Midwesterners harbored deep racism and looked with suspicion at the idea of free African Americans competing with so called white Americans, even though many others aided runaway slaves into liberty in Canada or perhaps Boston. Now, in either case, the entire Midwest focused on agriculture, as we said, but it was a very commercial agriculture. The network of markets extended from the Caribbean to Europe. At St. Louis, gateway to the west and the prime port on the mississippi until new orleans itself one could drink of french libations and fill a library with british publications and opposing st louis up the ohio river cincinnati was an even larger if less assertive city providing access to the other half of the midwest in terms of population the state of ohio held almost three million citizens with indiana and illinois together matching that missouri held 1.2 million and another 750,000 each in Michigan and Wisconsin, with Iowa still growing at 600,000, and then young Minnesota and Nebraska barely settled. This growing reservoir of manpower perhaps held the balance of political power in the country as well, and also a huge proportion of its agricultural base. Now, the two remaining border states, not including West Virginia, on the grounds that West Virginia didn't exist yet, include Maryland and Kentucky, Because most of the Washington, D.C. area lay inside the borders of Maryland, it would have an important role to play in the coming conflict, despite being relatively small for a state. However, Maryland also had a very large free African-American population. Slavery only held sway in certain areas and had been in decline for years. Several notably important African-American figures came from Maryland, including Frederick Douglass. Both because escaping slavery there was relatively, and I strongly emphasize the word relatively here, easy due to the long border shared with Pennsylvania, and also because of the large free community. If you had just a little bit of luck, you just might be able to escape slavery here, whereas it was often completely impossible in the Deep South. Now, Maryland, like many southern states, had an internal divide between the plantations and the inland areas. But the slavery divide didn't precisely match that either. As something of a pivot point of the Atlantic region, Maryland had over the years become something of a commercial powerhouse as well, and a cosmopolitan center, if a smaller one than New York. When the war came, it would find itself almost torn in half, but Native Unionism would win over, Kentucky's importance was more strategic and political. The state held several important mountain passes and two north south rivers within its borders, and had the southern border of the Ohio River. Perhaps even more importantly, Kentucky had a long legacy of statesmanship keeping the Union together as it strained to grow westward, especially, for example, under the leadership of Henry Clay. Kentuckians, then and now, had no shame in identifying themselves as Southern culturally and found no conflict, in also having a strong national outlook. As the more or less literal crossroads of the country, Kentucky had been an early leader in calling for road and bridge infrastructure to bind the nation together, physically and perhaps morally. In its own way, Kentucky was something like a less powerful, but equally confident, younger sibling to Virginia, and heir to some of its revolutionary-era political ideology. Like Virginia, Kentucky was oriented around tobacco somewhat more than cotton, and tobacco wasn't as tightly bound to the slave labor model. Abolition here lay very dormant, but its roots went deeper than one might expect, as ironically many yeoman farmers who settled Kentucky had traveled there from Virginia in search of richer soil and more opportunity. From here, we turn to the sunny south, beginning with, yeah, you probably guessed it, Virginia. Virginia. Virginia was nigh a region unto itself, and technically a border state, though usually considered part of the Upper South. Culturally and politically, it held more influence than perhaps any other state in the nation except maybe New York. Here lay the heart of Anglicanism and the center of gravity of the early republic, as well as the home of Washington, Jefferson, and Madison, among many other American heroes and presidents. Yet, much of its importance and power had diminished greatly since the Revolutionary War, a fact which greatly annoyed its leadership. While Virginia was still the most populous southern state, and the largest in the Union until far off California and Texas joined the nation, it had lost over a million citizens to westward migration. Now, these carried its culture towards Kentucky and far beyond, as we've seen. But the American exodus still drained Virginia of its voting power and influence on the national stage. In fact, it turned out that many of these westbound settlers had their own ideas about how to vote, which further weakened the net influence of Virginia. At the same time, Virginia was no longer quite as wealthy as it had been, and her planter class increasingly mired in debt. Though possessing sizable assets, many Virginia plantations were less and less often profitable. The state had been oriented around tobacco more than cotton originally. And much of the state's soil just wasn't suitable for the rich cotton market. Yet tobacco cultivation could, and did, wear out the earth when done year after year. Hence, planters increasingly went west themselves to find virgin lands, or sold off their slaves down the Mississippi, or went bankrupt and had no choice but to sell out anyway. This slow fiscal death was one, though not the only, reason that abolition sentiment diminished over time as a slave owner believed that they couldn't afford to lose their only remaining financial resource, cruel though it was. Now, the exception here was the Tidewater region, which remained rich and influential from the growing cotton trade, and exercised a powerful influence on politics. And we'll come back to Virginia shortly. Our next state, North Carolina, is a bit of an odd duck regionally and culturally speaking, although it too was, and still is, considered part of the Upper South along with Virginia and Tennessee, and perhaps Kentucky, depending on how flexible you want to be. North Carolina had a more manufacturing-oriented economy than most southern states, with important textile mills, a fairly large population, and good harbors. Somewhat oddly, North Carolina often preferred to follow the lead of South Carolina or Virginia rather than setting its own political path. The reason I find this odd is that it would turn out that North Carolina was often singularly unenthusiastic about the causes those two states went wild over. North Carolinians were simply never quite as bound to the slave system as nearby states, though of course there were still many plantations and a large slave population. Continuing on, the Deep South region includes a belt of states, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Now, I just can't deal with all of these states individually in the time we have, but we'll at least point out the most important aspects. All of these states had economies heavily dependent on slave cultivation of cotton. Now, they were not politically identical, but they did feel a close kinship, often a literal one since family networks frequently spread across this region. To some degree, Florida may be included since it was lightly settled except for the northernmost region, Now, South Carolina was clearly the most influential of all of these states, and her quote-unquote leadership would spread the tinder that would carry the country into the bloody conflict ahead. Part of the reason here, as in Mississippi, was that slaves entirely outnumbered the rest of the population, including freedmen, combined. South Carolina's political class came to believe that any weakening of the system of slavery might provoke a complete economic collapse, or worse, a bloody slave revolt. However, all of the Deep South states had a very high percentage of slaves, and their major economic institutions were principally based on slave agriculture. Land and capital accrued to slaveholding, but even fields such as industry and journalism had to go along with it. Likewise, each state also had a population between 700,000 and 1 million souls. Not surprisingly, however, The profits of the slaveholding accumulated most prominently to a small elite. Most white Southerners saw very little gain for it, although they wouldn't openly challenge the system politically. Naturally, African Americans saw only the losses, and we shouldn't ignore them or treat their concerns as secondary here. They were Americans and Southerners also. While South Carolina claimed social influence, Louisiana, by contrast, remained the most financially and commercially important. Outside of being the major center of French culture and Catholicism in the United States, it also held the South's largest city by far, New Orleans, the only southern city to rival New York or Philadelphia for urban culture and development. Moreover, this wasn't merely a big town, but one of the single most important ports in the world. The city became the largest cotton market on the face of the earth, of course, but also a major center of the sugar trade, as well as the avenue for manufactured goods and luxuries to flow upriver. Furthermore, the city's warehouses stored tons upon tons of grain from the Midwest, which could be carried downriver inexpensively in barges instead of using the railroads or canals, and which then filled hungry bellies around the world. Significant to the history of Louisiana and New Orleans, the original French settlers had a more complex attitude towards race and slavery than the anglophones who later joined them now to be 100% clear here i am making no judgment on whether any version of slavery was better or worse just that they added all kinds of convoluted class divisions and exceptions as part of this complexity a sizable group of mixed-race slave owners lived in the state and counted themselves as proud as any white master in on the mississippi Now, white Americans didn't necessarily respect them socially more than they would other African Americans, but the free mixed-race Creoles also didn't challenge the existing hierarchy and were therefore largely tolerable within the Southern racial system. However, remember because this community will have its own part to play during the Civil War and in trying to move past it afterwards. Now, speaking very broadly... When traveling through the South, many observers noted their relatively quiet pace of life and society. There may well have been less business and trade, public investment, education, and activity of all kinds in the Southern states. For the most part, of course, only white Southern males engaged in these activities, and not all of them. At the same time, many of the older Southern states saw their vitality sapped by emigration, just as Virginia was, towards the West and whether that was the Old Northwest or the Southwest, regardless. And they left behind, basically, the less fruitful land in the South. Where northern cities and states were often replenished by immigration abroad, however, southern ones had fewer opportunities and proportionately fewer immigrants. After all, immigrants often arrived with little wealth and often more enthusiastic energy than skill. But unskilled labor opportunities remained dominated by masters and their gangs of slaves for hire. This made it much more difficult for people to ascend up the economic ladder, unless they could somehow manage to get land and slaves themselves. Now, skilled tradesmen, or merchants and bankers and other professionals might do very well in the South, of course. But even then, the South attracted noticeably less immigration than any northern region. Now, in all of this, you may have noticed that I skipped over Tennessee. The reason for that is because this state in particular bears looking at later on, so I will go over it in detail at that time. The campaigns in Tennessee will occupy many episodes, and it deserves as much detail as northern Virginia. Apart from that, we have the huge lands of the West, including Texas, all far beyond the mighty Mississippi. However, for a variety of reasons, these are only going to be partly relevant to the war itself, and mostly in the decades leading up to it rather than during the war. Besides, Texas is getting its own episode shortly. I will, however, discuss a region partly inside the South that deserves a bit of recognition, the Appalachians. Stretching from New York to Alabama, the Appalachians are a relatively low-slung mountain range that formed the western borders of the original 13 colonies. The hills and peaks don't intimidate the traveler as the Rockies or Alps do, for these are ancient stones, one of the oldest ranges in the world yet they were rough enough to slow down European settlement. Those who did land here before independence tended to come from the border of Scotland and England, and have a long history of fighting with each other. They thrived in the conflict of the revolution, and opened the way to further colonization. They also had very little use for slavery, sneered at social privilege, and happily fought with and or intermarried with Native Americans. They stood astride the party systems of the country, and cared very little for what outsiders thought of them. There's also a long history of said outsiders engaging in wild exaggeration or outright invention when dealing with the rough and often ill-educated but tough and culturally vibrant Appalachian people. Many Americans sneered at them as hillbillies or inbred hicks. However, I bring the region and its people up in particular because they are going to have a noticeable impact on the Civil War. The Appalachian regions will resist, sometimes violently, the imposition of a slave owner's regime which made it politically necessary for Abraham Lincoln to try to occupy those regions. Indeed, the fear that these people would flip to the Republicans partly drove secession itself. Additionally, Virginia in 1860 looked quite a bit different than today, because it included the not-yet-formed state of West Virginia. This sizable western territory lay, then as now, up in the Appalachians. Few roads led into this landscape, which actually stretched as far north as Pittsburgh. Although hardly abolitionist in sentiment, a huge cultural gap existed between the planters' glittering world of moonlight and magnolias and cotton and slaves on the one hand, and the hard scrabble farm communities high in the hills on the other. The benefits of industrialization largely passed this territory, save for a single rail line that ran from the Ohio River to Baltimore. And while I apologize for talking your ear off about all of that, that's as much as I could cram into this episode without really digging into the individual history, politics, and culture of each state on a level that would be hard to keep relevant. Hopefully, this will be useful in trying to keep the major groups organized in your mind. Next week, we begin diving into the original and serious political history that, in my view, sparked the long road to civil war. Join us next week for episode six, the tariff of abominations.